Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, why many downwinders who need it are losing their health care coverage. And this award season is shaping up to be a celebration of the anti-hero in television and movies. But first, both Republicans and Democrats in the state legislature know that housing is a top issue for voters. And we're in an election year. So both parties are now resurrecting ideas that failed to pass last year in an attempt to make some moves on housing. The GOP is focused on deregulation and cutting red tape at the local level to allow for more housing to be built. The Dems are calling for rent control, protection of voters' renters' rights, and programs to prevent homelessness and eviction. So where can the two sides come together? And why should this year's proposals fare fare any differently than last year's? For more on all of that, I am joined by Cameron Sanchez of KJZZ's Politics Desk, who covers last year's failed bill and is covering this year's version 2.0. Good morning, Cameron. Good morning. Okay, so two Republican lawmakers introduced their identical bills in the House and the Senate this week to do with housing. What are they looking to do? Well, it's a few things, but it's less comprehensive than last year's package. Last year, Senator Steve Kaiser, who is a Republican in the Senate, um, introduced this really large bill, 1117, that mm-hmm. had tons of different elements, um, some of which were, were pretty radical. And that bill couldn't survive. He tried chopping it down into a couple smaller bills, but in the end, it didn't make it. And this year, you're seeing a lot of smaller elements of that initial bill coming back in little in little bits and pieces. So with Borelli and Piasucci's bill, and those are the two lawmakers this year who have mm-hmm. done the mirror bills in the House and the Senate, you're seeing some of those little pieces. And I think one of the, the big focus areas is on aesthetic review design standards. So that's, for example, a municipality rejecting a housing project based on things like you know, the color of the walls or the shape of the tiles. And I think, you know, that is something that they think that they can get everyone to agree is is too, too far. Too far. Okay, And we're going to hear from Senator Kaiser soon, I should say. What about on the Democratic side? They came out with some housing proposals a week or two ago. It's a little bit different, but there's also some overlap. So last year, I will say that Kaiser had a strange bipartisan coalition behind him. Not enough. There were still no's on the Democrat side, no's on the Republican side. But he had some Democrats and Republicans in support of his bill. Um, And you're seeing that again this year. You're seeing some Democrats creeping on as co-sponsors of Republican bills. And you're seeing some Democrats and Republicans introducing um, similar pieces of housing legislation. Mm -hmm. The Democrats' plan overall was not the same as the Republicans with a different focus. It wasn't about cutting red tape. There was more of a focus on addressing homelessness, which is almost a separate conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to the housing ideas that Kaiser proposed, though, there are a few that Democrats are wanting to bring back, like the accessory dwelling units, making them easier to build. This is like the casitas in the backyard, things like that. Sure. Or like a mother-in-law suite. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how much of this is, it sounds like a resurrection of what Kaiser put up last time. It's it's a, it was, you've mentioned a few couple proposals here, but it sounds like they're coming at this in a piecemeal approach. Yes, I think the most, I'm going to say again, radical piece of legislation that Kaiser attempted to bring in last year was by right, um, saying that 
you have a right to build a housing development if it meets all of these specific elements and no one can stop you. Mm-hmm. And I think that was way too extreme for municipalities and lawmakers to get behind. And that is one element that I don't see coming back, just the most far out. Um, but a lot of those other little pieces like encouraging production of multiplexes and, you know, like that's duplexes, triplexes and yeah. allowing single family homes to be built on different lot sizes, things like that. Those are those are all trickling back in in little tiny pieces. And I think that maybe they have a better chance as individual concepts rather than asking people to sign on to all these new things at once in yeah. one enormous bill. Yeah. OK. So let me talk about the politics here with you a little bit. Some of these GOP proposals like stripping some zoning requirements, the lot sizes you mentioned, specific design and aesthetic elements you talked about, also HOA requirements, whether or not a city can require people to join an HOA. Like, these would really change the way many neighborhoods look. How might this play with the electorate? It would. And, you know, in pretty much every municipality in the United States of America, I think you can find what we call nimbyism, mm-hmm. which is not in my backyard ism. Like we want affordable housing and we need it, but I don't want it right next to me. I don't want a giant, you know, affordable housing complex next to my pretty ranch house. Yeah. And I think we're going to see some opposition from the League of Arizona Cities and Towns. That's a lobbying group for the municipalities. It's very strong, very powerful, very large. They've also they've already said that they oppose the Biasucci and Borelli bills and a few others that have been proposed. They say that it's it's um, the legislature taking the city's authority and making it their own, and you know taking away the voice of the local level. Right, right. So it sounds like they are already coming out against this. But as we said last time around, Senator Kaiser was able to work with the league and sort of create some sort of agreement on some of these issues. Do you imagine that happening again? Yes and no. They had a delicate deal after much, uh, I want to say, fighting. And part of that deal survived and part of it fell through at the end. There There are several players that these housing bills need to get by. They need to get by the majority of the Republicans, the leadership, but also the Freedom Caucus, which is the further right Republicans. Also, the legislative Democrats, uh, it would be helpful for them to get behind it if they want the governor to sign off because she is a Democrat. And mm-hmm. then, of course, there's the governor and the League of Cities and Towns is a big player. How, how will the governor play on this? Like, what did she have to say last time around as well? She was tentative so far this year. She said she supports creating more affordable housing, of course. But she also was cautious and said she doesn't want to usurp local control. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, uh, one more question on the Democrat side here. They didn't get any traction on on things like rent control last year. Senator Kaiser's bill was bipartisan, though, as you said. Are some of these ideas, are there some ideas coming from the Democratic side of the aisle that could gain traction that could cross over? I don't think something as big as rent control necessarily, but I think smaller things like the Casitas bill, which has been introduced by both Democrats and Republicans this year. It's it's really interesting because housing is a number one issue for voters, and it has been. And housing prices keep going up, and there's not enough of a supply of it, and it's a kitchen table issue for yeah. voters. I mean, elderly people get priced out, people who don't make a lot of money, students, young people, and, it you know, it's frustrating for so many constituents and for lawmakers in an election year to go back to their voters and say, I know you said that housing was the number one issue and I haven't, I'm sorry to tell you that we didn't do anything on mm. it. That's not a great look. Right. So they're going to really try to push to get something done. I think so. Okay. We'll leave it there for now. Cameron Sanchez with KJZZ's Politics Desk joining us. Cameron, thanks as always. Thank you. 
So that is the view of housing reform from this year's lawmakers. Now let's turn to the former lawmaker whose failed legislation last year led to much of what's being discussed today, of course, former Senator Steve Kaiser. Kaiser devoted his time in the state legislature to addressing our state's housing crisis, and as you just heard, his efforts failed. SB 1117 was an ambitious package of legislation, a bipartisan effort to deregulate zoning and boost our state's inadequate housing supply. But even after strike striking a deal with the League of Arizona Cities and Towns to slim down his proposal. The package failed to get enough support on either side of the aisle. Shortly after, Senator Kaiser resigned from the legislature, but he hasn't stopped working on housing. I sat down with him in our studios recently to talk about his past and current efforts and why he says he might be able to accomplish more meaningful change on this front from outside of the legislature. Well, I'm from Illinois, but I grew up in North Phoenix since I was five. I remember growing up, and this was before school choice, so hearing from my mom, you know, like, we had to stretch to get in this nice neighborhood, so you have a nice school, and I always thought that was wrong. And so I've always kind of been keyed in on house pricing. Uh, Went to Georgia in the Army with my wife, and homes were very cheap there. Came back to Phoenix in 2008, and right in the middle of all the, the housing, when it was kind of ramping up, we were very nervous back then about being able to afford a home. Fast forward to 2020 when I ran for office, and I understood that your home price is your biggest expense, rent or mortgage, biggest expense. If you can keep that within that 30% range, everything else you can do. You can be prosperous. You can have disposable income. And that's the best way to build wealth, too. Mm. And so I had all these things in my mind as I'm running, and what I wanted to do was make Arizona more prosperous, more affordable, And housing was always at the forefront because it's your biggest expense, but it's also the best way to build wealth. So you, as you said, had kind of traveled the state to to study this. You'd met with a ton of people. You worked with Democrats. You worked with Republicans. And in the end, you even struck a deal with the League of Arizona Cities and Towns to try to, you know, compromise on this. And this big effort still didn't pass, mainly because in the end of Republican opposition, right? I wonder, take us back to that. Like, what was your reaction? Oh, man. So it's a little bit like reliving a stressful situation. (laughs) So we were working very hard to um, come to agreements on this bill. It was an aggressive bill when it dropped. That's fine. That's how you start. And then we were constantly negotiating. So we were negotiating with some Republicans that wanted certain things. And every time they came back to us and said, we'd like to change it to say this, we would say, perfect. Yes, we'll do it. Mm -hmm. Do we have your support? And they would say, well, let me go back to our group and talk to them. And they'd always come back and say, we want something else and we want something else. So this was going on for weeks. At the same time, we were also negotiating with the league and the league was saying, this needs to be changed. This needs to be changed. We'd push back. And so we were negotiating with the league also at the same time. And so um, ultimately session was running out of time and we uh, had a deal with the league before we had to deal with with the other group. So Mm. it it does come down to sort of timelines and and political jockeying, right? I mean, were you, were you upset? Were you disappointed? Very upset, very disappointed. Um, You know, it's, and I knew this was always a possibility because the year before we didn't even get out of committee. Hmm. It was so, it was too aggressive, but we turned it into the study committee. And I know that incrementalism is the name of the game down to legislature, But it's hard to accept that sometimes when you know, like, this could solve problems and this could help your fellow citizens. And so you want to push for something that is more substantial. But the risk is always there. It was definitely a high risk for failure, but Mm -hmm. it still hurts when it does fail, for sure. (laughs) 
I want to talk to you about the politics of this also. Yeah. But do you think there was also just sort of like a loss for the state, for your constituents? Um, I mean, it would have been amazing for the state and constituents to get something passed. But what happened, even though it was a technical failure in that the bill didn't pass this session, there are so many members running housing bills right now. Mm -hmm. Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, progressives, it doesn't matter. It's amazing to see that. And I would almost rather have that because what we did wrong was have it in one person's name as a huge bill. Mm -hmm. It should have been multiple members, each running a piece of it. And that's what they're doing now, which I love. So, But you're not, not involved in this, we should say. So <laughs> you announced not long after that bill failed that you would leave the legislature. Um, now you're running a nonprofit called Arizona Prosperity Project. You're focused on electing more center-right Republicans, focused on some of those issues in the center-right. I want to talk to you uh, about your role in what's happening now. But first, just tell us, you know, why you left when you did. Like, did this have to do with that failure of the housing bill? Yeah, it didn't have to do with the failure of the housing bill. Um, I was still very happy with a lot of other amazing bills I was able to you know, get across the finish line last year. I, I really left because I was recognizing that the legislature was changing me in a way that I didn't like. I was putting the legislature before my family. And I would come home and just be pissed off and angry all the time because I'd be thinking about legislative things. And it just consumed my whole life, and my family was um, not the beneficiary of that. And so I knew I didn't want to run again. But I also didn't want my primary, whoever replaced me, to be a total mess. Mm. And it'd be, oh, you know, because we're in a 50 50 district. Yeah. I'm still a Republican. I believe in the Republican Party and values and ideals. So I wanted to protect my seat also. And by resigning, I knew that they would have to appoint a Republican in my place that the PCs would pick with the county supervisor. And they would be able to then be an incumbent and run and hopefully not have a primary. And so that's generally what happened. So I'm, I'm happy about that. I hated leaving midterm, but I, I did it because I did it for my family, number one, mm. and for my party, number two. So let's talk about what your role is now, sort of working on issues, including yeah. housing issues, which are so big and, as you said, like prominent already at the legislature this session from the outside. Yeah. How does that sort of change your view of, of what's happening, first of all? Well, I love working on policy. And what's nice is you can focus. As a, as a legislator, you are pulled a million different ways by a million different interests, and you have to discuss a million different topics. And that's the exciting part. But it also when you lose focus, it's also the frustrating part. Mm. So tell us about issues you're working on this time around from your new vantage point here coming from the outside. So housing is still something I'm really trying to support from the outside. And what I'm trying to do with this raft of housing bills, I'm not allowed to lobby members about bills. So mm -hmm. I can't say, you know, vote yes or no on this bill or why these bills are positive or negative. But what I can do is work with groups and businesses and community organizations that want zoning reform so they can build more housing for people and bring down the cost of housing. And so what I'm doing is working in the background, coordinating those groups and, and helping the overall push down at the legislature, but from an adjacent point of view. Yeah. yeah. So you talked about basically supply and demand there, right? Yeah. Like one of the big sticking points in housing here is that we just do not have enough of it. But the other side of that gets very tough, too, when you start to mess with zoning. As you know, like people get defensive. There's a lot of not in my backyard kind of stuff, right. it, especially when it comes to affordable housing, which we need so much of. Right. Where do you see the compromise coming there? Where do you think the rubber is going to have to hit the road because we have to make some changes? So 
zoning is about 90% of what city governments do, right? This is a huge part of what they do. And so this is why I think it was so scary for them what we were contemplating initially in some of these bills because it was pretty aggressive. Mm. There are other cities in the nation that have very light zoning and not surprisingly, they have very affordable housing naturally, right? That's what we're going for. We're just looking for naturally affordable. We don't want to do subsidies and all these extra little things, gimmicky things. We can create naturally affordable by allowing less government interference. But you also have to respect the will of the community and some input from the community. And so I think the balance is not taking away everything from the city control-wise, but still allowing more freedom, having maybe uh, shot clocks on how, how long it takes to get things back and forth. There are lots of areas of compromise, and that's mm-hmm. where we got to with the league last year, things like ADUs. That was an agreed-upon thing. Accessory dwelling Ex- units, yeah, yeah. thank you. The casita so like, in the backyard. Right, the casita mm-hmm. in the backyard, yeah. You know, the single-room occupancies for seniors was an, uh, an option, the housing needs assessment. So there's no data out there as far as what cities are building. What do you think it says about the state of politics, I guess, that or the state of the legislature, that a lot of what happened in the end, like the the reason you didn't get a lot of these reforms passed was because of opposition within your own party? Uh, I think it says that, um, you know, politics is all local. But in that phrase, what I mean is when you're down at the legislature, friendships and personalities matter, too. Mm. You know, some people just didn't like the policy. Some people don't like the person. Um, sometimes it's a mix of both. Um some people don't like when you make deals with other groups before them, and so they want to kill your stuff because of that. Hmm. And that's the kind of gamesmanship that is irritating and also fascinating at the same time. So I think what's really exciting this year is how many different people are running housing bills. From and all sides of the from aisle. From all sides. Yeah. I mean, you've got Freedom Caucus members running things. You've got super progressive people running things, and you've got everything in between. Hmm. That's going to be the recipe for success. So I wonder, like, looking at this from the outside in now, what Mm -hmm. you're doing and still working on these same issues, but in a different way. I mean, do you think, do you feel like you're able to almost get more done now from the outside than you were as an elected official? You know, I ran for office because I wanted to make my community better. I wanted to make my state better because I love Arizona. And I still feel like I can make Arizona better be being on the outside as an advocate. And I feel like I can be more helpful and more productive because, again, about the focus. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it's just it just wears you out. Um, you're just getting pulled a million ways. But now on the outside, I can say, you know what, I'm going to focus on these two or three topics. It's going to be much more impactful. And it's it that's the fulfillment and rewarding part that I was looking for when I first ran. All right. We will leave it there. That is former state senator Steve Kaiser. Steve, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. And this is the show. And this is 91.5 and KJZZ.org on this Wednesday morning. Thank you for joining us today. Here now, coming up this morning at 11. And of course, at 1, it's BBC News Hour. In Valley traffic on the Loop 101 freeway northbound in the East Valley at Cactus Road. We have a crash blocking the end of the exit ramp there. Mostly cloudy, a high of 79 today, 10 degrees above normal, down to 75 with a chance of rain tomorrow. 61 degrees right now in Phoenix at 926. 
KJZZ is supported by Scottsdale's Western Week Gold Palette Art Walk, February 1st, 6.30 to 9 p.m. in the Scottsdale Arts District. Live country music, art, dancing, and more. ScottsdaleGalleries.com Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, why we love to watch characters we hate. But first, when Congress passed the new National Defense Authorization Act late last year, it did not include an amendment that had previously been part of the bill. It would have extended coverage to more people who are considered downwinders. The term generally refers to people affected by nuclear testing in the West during the middle part of the 20th century. Many residents have since been diagnosed with various forms of cancer. Some are entitled to compensation for that, but advocates wanted to extend that to more victims in more parts of the country. To talk about what comes next, my co-host Mark Brody spoke with Sherry Hanna, an Arizona downwinder advocate. She started her activism in 2014 after losing her husband to a downwinder-affiliated cancer the year before. Her father also died from a downwinder-affiliated cancer in 1983. Hannah herself is a downwinder, although she says she so far hasn't been diagnosed with any illnesses. And they started with what it means for her and her community that the NDAA did not include these things that had been in the bill and that she'd been pushing for. We had broad bipartisan support on this when the amendment was added to the NDAA. And we were so very hopeful that when the um, NDAA was passed at the end of the year, that that amendment would still be included Uh, in that bill. But unfortunately, it wasn't. It was taken out. So it was very devastating, to say the least, um, because we know from uh, data that has been collected over the years that there are other states and um, other areas and other sicknesses that have arisen um, that are associated with the nuclear testing uh, that was done. And so we wanted to uh, expand RECA to facilitate those people and areas that were uh, left out. So what have you been trying to do now that the amendment was taken out of the bill? Like, what's the next step for folks who do what you do? Well, first of all, education is the most important thing you can do to educate people. And I want to thank the Union of Concerned Scientists that invited me to be a part of their group because as a single person, as an activist, downwinder activist, Um, I had gone pretty much as far as I could on my own. So I'm so, like I said, I was so grateful for the Union of Concerned Scientists that invited me to be a part of their group because they have a bigger reach and a bigger audience than I could uh, muster. So I think as we just continue to be out there and the the movie Oppenheimer has really brought a drawn attention Hmm. to the nuclear testing. And that has been a great um, asset to us because like I said, a lot of people aren't familiar with it if you, you're not directly affected by it. So this movie has brought attention to the, the critical uh, issues that are affiliated with the nuclear fallout of the testing. Are you finding that with the bigger platform uh, with Union of Concerned Scientists, and as you say, the, the movie Oppenheimer as well, is that helping you reach more people and, and get people to sign up before the, the deadline that's coming up later this year? Well, it has because people that know that I am a downwinder advocate and what that entails have called me or talked to me and said, have you seen the movie Oppenheimer? That's when I saw that movie, it directly related to I understand what you're doing. And so it it has brought more more awareness. And I think even 
uh, to our legislatures that have seen it. And that's, like I said, going to be our big goal now to uh, continue to spread the word. Unfortunately, RICO will expire in June of this year. And so only the only way you can file for compensation is uh, if you've been diagnosed with one of the 19 forms of cancer that are currently covered under the RICO program. If you are a, a downwinder raised in the uh, affected areas, you can still sign up for the free cancer screenings and the medical uh, checkups. But that will all go away if RICA is not expanded and extended uh, past June of 2024. Then if people uh, are diagnosed, uh, qualified individuals are diagnosed with any of the sicknesses um, that are affiliated or the cancers that are affiliated with RICA, if it is not extended past June of 2024, there will not be compensation for those people. Do you have any measure of optimism that it will be extended beyond June of this year? Well, I'm very hopeful because we ran up a, before a deadline previously a couple of years ago, and we've pushed really hard. And like I said, we had great bipartisan support because not only um, do individuals that live in the affected areas are concerned about it, they have been uh, very well spoken and other downwinder activists across the country have been out there educating their uh, legislatures uh, the people that represent them on what a great important issue this is that we continue to compensate the individuals that were greatly affected by what our own government uh, did in the nuclear testing uh, and the fallout that and the ramifications from the fallout. Did you ever get a, an explanation as to why this amendment, which, as you say, did have bipartisan support, did not make it into the final bill? No, I just understand it was taken out and um so, like I said, it was very, very disappointing and disheartening, but I think the fact that we have another opportunity to maybe pass uh, this with better legislation, like I said, uh, expanding and extending, just work, working directly with the RICA amend, uh, bill that was uh, given to us and that was passed in 1990 by Congress. So they obviously recognized the need for this back in 2011. The United States Senate recognized uh, January 27th as a National Day of Remembrance for American Downwinders. So they, too, recognized the need to let everyone know about what happened and the ramifications of that and that we need to continue fighting. The government has obviously taken responsibility. So we just need to remind them that they are further should be further obligated to take care of these individuals that are still have time left and may be affected by this down the road. What are the efforts like at this point to try to get a, a standalone bill that would reinstate it and maybe even expand and extend it? Well, we're hopeful that that we can do this. It's going to be a big push because obviously we are in January and the bill does expire in June of 2024. So, But I think a, a great effort was done this past year. And so I'm just very hopeful because um, it, it's just critical. I, I'm a, you know, a lot of baby boomers. We still are here. We, uh, even though we haven't been diagnosed with an affected disease, we still are living our lives and have that hanging over us that we could be affected later on down the road. If a new bill isn't passed, what kind of impact will that have on your community? Do you think it'll it'll have a great impact because not only my community but all the communities that are currently covered under RICA because. Like I said, there continues to be individuals 
contract these diseases, uh, cancers, and directly, you know, affects them and their families, uh, not only health-wise, but financially. And the money that, that they receive from the RECA program, if they're diagnosed with one of the downwinder cancers, it's just vital. It makes a difference between people filing bankruptcy and getting the help that they need and the care that they need. And um, it, it's just critical. And I think our voices have been loud, but we're just going to have to really give it a full pro- press to be louder and to educate uh, as best we can to continue the fight. Because wh- if it does expire, there will be a time frame. We'll keep fighting to bring it back if we can, but there'll be, a, and if we, that happens, there will be a gap in there where people, if they're diagnosed or uh, with one of the cancers or illnesses under RECA, then they may not be compensated. So, uh, you know, we just need to do our best to make sure that this will not expire. Sure. All right. Sherry Hanna, thank you so much for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. And this is the show. And on a Wednesday morning, you are listening to 91.5 KJZZ. KJZZ.org, also on the mobile app. Thanks for coming along with us. Be a part of KJZZ's First Press Fine Wine Festival on February 17th. You'll experience the very best wines throughout the West, including Absolution Cellars, Pillsbury Wine Company, and Somnium, all at the stunning Wrigley Mansion. Sponsored by Clear Channel Outdoor, you can get details and tickets at firstpress.kjzz.org. Still 61 degrees right now in Phoenix at 936. KJZZ is supported by the Maricopa County Recorder's Office. Help keep voter rolls up to date by checking your voter status at beballotready.vote, especially if you have changed your name, address, or political party. Beballotready.vote. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. The Arizona Department of Health Services plans to increase its wastewater surveillance program to detect new strains of COVID-19. The agency is also hoping to expand the program to be able to detect other pathogens, including RSV, influenza, and Mpox, among others. Wastewater surveillance was widely used here and elsewhere during the pandemic as a sort of early warning system. can be used to detect where there could be an outbreak, although this method cannot specify who may be infected. To talk more about this, my co-host Mark Brody spoke with Dr. Reshma Newpain, Food and Waterborne Program Manager at the Arizona Department of Health Services, beginning with how they try to make sure that as a virus like COVID continues to mutate and evolve, their equipment and technology are able to keep up with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's something in wastewater surveillance in general is evolving. Um, so we make sure that, you know, our lab team, um, I know they're really good with kind of being up to date to make sure the instrument and the processes that they're um, kind of using is up to date and, and accurate. And I know they've been doing a lot of conversations with other state partners, CDC, and within um, their team to, to ensure that workflow processes is still accurate for, for wastewater testing. 
Was this something that a lot of folks were doing before COVID? Like, was wastewater surveillance a, a big deal in the epidemiology world prior to, say, 2020, 2021? Um, it, yes, it had been um, used before prior to COVID, but I know it kind of became a very common tool to be used once um, we experienced COVID. So it was being used for kind of, you know, detecting other uh, levels like opioids. I know that was something that was being tested before. Um, so, and other other levels that people were, you know, testing for and labs were testing for. But, you know, once COVID uh, pandemic hit, it kind of became an extra tool in our toolbox to kind of um, you know, test for COVID-19 to, to kind of give an idea of uh, what that um, COVID-19 is looking like within our community. Is it safe to say that, that COVID kind of gave this type of technology, this type of surveillance a boost, at least in the public mind, that, hey, this is another tool, this is another way we can be, we can be looking for stuff? Yes, I, I, I believe so. I think, like I said, you know, it kind of... Um, wastewater kind of evolved after after our um, 2020 pandemic. And I think that kind of um, gave others an idea that, hey, you know, maybe this could be used for detecting um, other pathogens, additional pathogens. So I know that ADHS is looking into using this kind of surveillance, the same kind of uh, surveillance to look for other kinds of pathogens, other kinds of illnesses. What right. is on the list? Like what, what makes something a good candidate to be looked at using this kind of, this kind of method? Yes, we are certainly looking um, to expand to other pathogens. Uh, but that, right, the question would be whether or not um, testing for that disease will be effective. So that's going to be a discussion with our other, you know, certain program areas and our county health departments to ensure that that testing would be beneficial for the public. So that's how we're kind of, you know, planning to kind of um, go about expanding to other diseases. What has to happen when you add a new pathogen? Like, what what do you have to do, or for whomever is doing the surveillance, what has to happen to add a new pathogen to to the surveillance? You know, that's something. I know um, CDC has come up with um, a priority list of certain pathos, pathogens that you know. Um, Kind of they're interested in testing. So uh, it kind of right now, it, it depends on um, what the need is um, and what the need, our um, need is at the state level. But like I said, we also um, collaborate with our county partners to kind of decide whether um, that can be effective tool. And, you know, I, I want to also mention that you, will, you don't want to um, I think it would be best to use wastewater data or surveillance with additional um, like public health data, like clinical cases, hospitalizations. Um, and then we want to think of wastewater surveillance as a additional tool in our toolbox. So it's that something you can use, not the only thing you use. Yeah, exactly. In terms of the technology, let's say you were to add something like RSV or, or influenza, something like that. That was going to be something right. that you that you look for. What what do you need to do to sort of add that to the the list of things that you're you're looking for in the wastewater? 
we certainly need to have those um, resources. I'm certainly not a lab expert, but we certainly need to have some of those resources available to be able to test fluent RSV for wastewater testing. Okay. What do you think is the ultimate potential of wastewater surveillance for either for for diseases, for uh, drug use and other kinds of substance use? Like how how big of a role, how big of a tool in the toolbox could this ultimately be, do you think? I think it's still evolving. I think we're learning something new about wastewater every day. Uh, But I do think it has the potential, like I said, I think, um, and what we talked about, you know, it's not the only tool, but it can serve an important tool while being used with other public health data. So it might serve as an early indicator, like I said, um, you know, it might, because it has the potential to capture individuals, areas who do not have access to testing or, you know, who are not able to go out there and get tested. So it kind of, wastewater gives an, a view of how the virus or the pathogen that we're testing for is spreading within the community. So it certainly has that potential to be that early indicator. Sure. All right. That is Dr. Reshma Nupain with the Arizona Department of Health Services. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day. If it's been a long time since you pulled out actual dollars and coins to pay for something, here is a conversation for you. It might seem like cash is slowly becoming obsolete, but our next guest says it's a false narrative that we're all pining for a cashless society. Brett Scott is a journalist, author, and economic anthropologist, and in his In his new book, Cloud Money, Why the War on Cash Endangers Our Freedom, he argues that the finance and tech sectors actually benefit enormously from this narrative and from every tap, swipe or online transaction we make. I spoke with him more about it. Well, the traditional story that's told about so-called cashless society is that it's kind of a bottom-up phenomenon, that it's driven by the ordinary person. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I do is show that there's actually just as many top-down processes, so large players that have been acting against the cash system for quite a long time. In particular, the finance industry, the tech industry, and also certain states have actually been actively trying to undermine the cash system for quite a long time. And that then actually feeds into public perceptions of cash Mm -hmm. and can actually create these sort of feedback loops, right? So there is, I'm not saying that there aren't people who enjoy using digital payment, but that's only one half of the story. To understand what's going on with cash as a society, you've got to look at the fact that many of these large players actually stand to benefit a lot if they get people to move away from the cash system. Hmm. And some players, even like a lot of the big tech players, really hate the cash system. So players like Amazon, for example, they can't operate with cash. What's going on, really, the big story in the global economy is ever more automation. And cash basically stands in the way of that. Cash is a form of money that you can't automate, essentially. What's the benefit for many of these major, you know, tech interests and, you know, banks, et cetera? Like, where is the benefit for them and how big is it in going cashless? Sure. So this term cashless is very misleading. It's a kind of a euphemism. It's a bit like calling whiskey beerless alcohol, right? You're not, <laughs> you're not talking about what's actually there. So what is a cashless society? Is a cashless society is a society where you cannot operate in the economy, 
unless you go via the banking sector. So you have to use bank accounts for everything. And of course, the banking sector gains enormous amounts of fees and data from that process. So the banking sector itself is one of the big beneficiaries. The Bank of America CEO openly said, we want a cashless society. <laughs> you know, we, we benefit. He just openly will state this. Actually, many bankers will openly state this because they, they run the entire so-called cashless infrastructure, right? Which is basically bank, bank transfers. Also, the, the, the card companies like Visa and MasterCard, you know, they shamelessly act against the cash system. Because bear in mind, every cash transaction that you do is a, is a transaction that Visa and MasterCard are not making money from. They're not making fees from it, right? Because Visa mm -hmm. basically specializes in telling the banks who's trying to move money from who to who. Governments tend to be slightly more complicated beasts because they're, they have multiple different mandates, right? You know, so, for example, the central bank is supposed to try and maintain the stability of the monetary system. So the central banks are worried about the cash system going down. Right, because they realize that actually the cash system underpins monetary stability. So, for example, in the U.S., when a, when a hurricane's approaching, the demand for cash spikes massively, right? Because people realize you want offline money when all the electricity goes down, right? Right. Yeah. So let's talk about the downside of that, right? Like, what does it mean if cash is phased out for the consumer in terms of, like, you know, our, first of all, our privacy? Yeah, you know, maybe the, a good sort of opening metaphor if you want to sort of think about this issue is um i sometimes talk about you know digital payments as ones you're using with your cards and stuff as like the uber of payments so mm -hmm. it's like you know the uberfication of payments whereas you know cash is something much more like the mountain bike it's a uh, something that you directly control um, rather than you know the uber where you having to rely upon this third party so actually so-called cashless society is a society of like, you know, totally uberfied payments. And if you think about this metaphor, this transport metaphor, if you, if you imagine that your transport system was totally controlled by players like Uber, you could immediately start to see all the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. Enormous amounts of data that they get, right? Enormous amounts of power to actually prevent you, for example, traveling if, if Uber controlled everything. Large centralization of power. Massive exclusion. And it's quite similar with the payment system. If, if you have this massive uberfication of payments, enormous amounts of data get collected. There's also the potential to actually block people, prevent them from spending on certain things that basically firewall them out of the economy if you don't like them. Mm -hmm. Also, large amounts of exclusion. If you can't access those systems or if you don't want to access those systems, you slowly get excluded from the society. Yeah. And then there's massive resilience problems, right? Because these huge digital infrastructures, if they go down and storms, cyber attacks, hacks, things like that, you can have massive national security problems. So actually, some of the people who are the most concerned about this are often people in the background of national security who say, you know, actually, yeah. if we suffer a, a massive cyber attack when our payment system's being totally digitized. That's an actually you can bring the entire economy to a standstill. So, I mean, I guess I wonder, like, is it too late already? Like, don't we already pretty much always use, you know, cards, apps, tapping, Apple Pay, whatever it may be to pay for not just goods in a store, but like, you know, your mortgage or any kind of major transaction that the regular consumer already has? Are we, are we past the eight ball here? No, I mean, the political goal here is to maintain a balance of power, all right? Now, I'm not naive. I know that people are not going to pay cash to you know, for their rent and their mortgage and things like that, right? Yeah. But it's very, very important to keep a realm of the payment system, the sort of in, in, in the realm of the small scale and the local, to keep that cash infrastructure there. And bear in mind, you know, it, 
there are many, many people who actually prefer the cash system. I mean, I, I constantly come across people because I do this work. I constantly yeah, come yeah. across people who say to me, we keep on being told that we're supposed to use these digital systems. We don't actually want to use these digital systems. We want to use the cash system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to sort of zoom out and see what's going on in the global economy, right? Because what's actually happening in a, in a standard economic system is that the priority is always to make things bigger and faster and more automated. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the global economy wants to expand, it wants to accelerate and expand. And that's a kind of a corporate process. That's what Amazon and and players like that want. Ordinary human beings, though, we don't necessarily want to constantly be told to speed up and expand all the time. So what actually will sort of happen is you find, uh, especially, for example, in places like London, where I was based for quite a long time, which has become incredibly hard to use cash. There's loads and loads of people there who basically been forced into the digital systems, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've been told if you don't use these digital systems, you're going to be left behind. Basically, what they're being told is that the global economy is going to expand and accelerate regardless of what you want. And you have to sync up to this. You have to return to these huge corporate systems. And if you don't want to, too bad for you. You know, I think this is important to you know, think about that, that sort of transport metaphor I was using with the, the bicycle and the Uber, because yeah. actually things like the bicycle, for example, they're slower and they're sort of more localized. But actually, these are very, very valuable forms of transport in our society. And actually, there's nothing about something being slower and older that means it's not modern. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be similar to the cash system in a, in a future where there's geopolitical instability, climate change, extreme amounts of digital burnout. Actually, people do want to have these slower forms of more localized transactions and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think it's short-sighted to imagine that everything's going to become digitized, right? But we're constantly told that that's what we have to believe is progress. All right. We'll leave it there for now. That is Brett Scott, journalist, author, and economic anthropologist, author of the book Cloud Money, Why the War on Cash Endangers Our Freedom. Brett, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you explaining this. It was great to be here. Thanks. And this is the show. And this is KJZZ on air, online, and on your phone. Thanks for joining us today. We're less than 10 minutes away from 10 o'clock when we will bring you here and now. We're going to hear from two top immigration and border reporters to talk about what lawmakers are proposing to do to stop a huge wave of immigration, how people at the southern border feel about those measures, and how it all might shape the 2024 election. That's all coming up at 10 o'clock on Here and Now. Mostly cloudy today in Phoenix, a high of 79. It is 62 degrees right now at 952. KJZZ is supported by SRP, working to deliver reliable, sustainable water and power to meet the evolving needs of the Valley now and for the next 100 years. You can discover how SRP is moving forward at srp.net slash future. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. It is award season, and that means Hollywood and what we're all watching is front and center. The Oscars will be here before we know it. And the Emmys made a big comeback earlier this month after a year of tumult and strikes. And one big theme of the best television and movies to emerge of late is our collective love of the anti-hero. Those ever-complicated, often downright awful characters who have dominated much of popular entertainment in recent years. Here is just a taste of the latest crop. Dad fired you, man. No, he did not fire me. 
He said it was just going to take a little longer. But he said that to be nice. What I think he meant to say was that he wished that mom gave birth to a can opener. Because at least then it would be useful. It's all about money. You don't need to work. You throw parties. And that's work. That's a lot of work. Trust me. Your wedding took years off my life. Don't get me wrong. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And I cannot remember a thing. You go back to whatever nook of the world you call home. And you do whatever it is you're good at. Because this is not it. You want to know what I'm good at? I'm good at killing people. So does it matter if we like the characters on these nominated shows? I spoke more about it with Melissa Kirsch, deputy editor of Culture and Lifestyle at The New York Times. She recently wrote about it for The Morning Newsletter. People often hearken back to Tony Soprano as sort Mm -hmm. of like the archetypal anti-hero. But when I was looking at the Emmy nominees this year, I was struck by how many of the shows centered on these like complicated, dangerous, like apparently, you know, if they were in your actual life, unlikable men. Mm -hmm. Um, Barry was one of the the big shows this year about a hitman shrinking with Jason Siegel about this kind of therapist of questionable ethics. There was this show about a CIA operative with kind of like a dirty past called The Old Man. And, you know, some of the big ensemble shows or the bigger shows that were nominated for Emmys like uh, The White Lotus and Succession, you know, have as their focus these kind of generally unlikable people. Mm-hmm. Um So I can't say why there are so many of them, but I can say that like people definitely like to watch people that they wouldn't necessarily want to go get a beer with (laughs) or um, maybe wouldn't leave in their house to watch their plants while they were on vacation. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. But it does sort of spark this debate that is still ongoing, I think, at least for me, right, that why do you want to watch some show where there's no one to cheer for, really? Like, like who are you supposed to like or even maybe relate to in these casts, you know? But it sounds like you, you're you not quite convinced by that argument. Tell us why. Well, I guess if you look at these characters, I see them all as, like, very human, you know? And I, I don't know that the people in my life are, and in your life, too, I'm sure, in all of our lives, we're, we're complex people. We're flawed people. Yeah. And you know, what a show can do or what a movie can do is kind of like magnify a certain part of somebody's personality so that because we, somebody who's creating a television show needs to have a villain. So they're going to (laughs) highlight the kind of worst qualities of that person. But like, ideally, a, a character who's compelling to watch has like a many faceted personality and that there are things in that person, maybe not the fact that they are a hitman or, <laughs> you know, like a ruthless titan of business. Maybe those aren't the things that you identify with, but that there's something there that there that you see a human being in them and not just a cartoon. Mm, I think that makes sense. Is there a sense of like, uh, like living vicariously through characters like this in a way too, especially when it comes to sort of the excesses of many of these characters? I think so. I mean, I think we like to watch people like who exist in milieus that we would never get anywhere near. Um, There are many people with many theories about why true crime is so popular. Mm -hmm. But I think one of them is that to be a spectator to our worst nightmares somehow is delicious and fascinating to us. And so I I do. I think that, you know, we, we want to get up close to the raw and ugly parts of human nature 
and observe them and perhaps see them mirrored in ourselves or see qualities that if we made different decisions in our lives might be magnified in us, mm. like there, but for the grace of God, go I. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I like to get up close to kind of nasty, ethically compromised characters and like learn what makes them tick and sort of find that humanness in them, mm. find in them what I can see in me. Is there a fear, though, Melissa, that 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 sometimes people and maybe because there's just so many of these characters now and they're so popular that like people miss the point, like that you're not necessarily supposed to cheer for this hitman or serial killer or whatever it may be because, you know, they are awful? Yeah, I, I find that interesting. I think that, you know, the argument that you were making, like, you know, well, there's nobody to root for. There's nobody to cheer for. I uh, you know, I think people certainly cheer for villains all the time, so they do find somebody to, <laughs> to cheer for. But does somebody have to be likable in order to be compelling? And to me, the answer is no. And I think to, you know, legions of viewers or whatever, the answer is probably no, that we want to watch people even if we don't like them. But I think that there's something interesting about the like somebody's personal preference, though, that they would prefer not to like spend their time with somebody that mm. they don't like, that these characters do feel real to them. And, you know, we do have these kind of parasocial relationships with people on our screens and that we prefer not to have them with people that we find odious. I mean, I think that I had thought, you know, in, in my piece, I had sort of argued that that not everybody's going to be likable, but that doesn't mean that they're not worth watching. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there's something to be said for you know, not wanting to spend your time with people real or imagined who you don't like. (laughs) I think that's fair. I definitely feel that way sometimes about these characters. But I wonder, do you think that these antiheroes are becoming sort of heroes in our culture, like where a lot of people are, are, do think they're just really cool and like kind of forget the fact that they're doing terrible things? Oh, I hope not. I mean, <laughs> that that seems like a really dangerous road to go down. Um, however, you know, I, I guess we do, you know, when I think about a show like Succession, where I am kind of rooting for despicable people to prevail. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what that says about me. I hope that in these fantasy worlds where we do want to get up close to, to the uglier sides of human nature, we, you know, we kind of flip the allegiances that we may have in real life for the you know, for the the kind, respectable people, I hope that we would still maintain a boundary between, <laughs> you know, real life and fantasy. You know, I think that that it's dangerous if we don't. But I, I I hope that's not true. I hope I hope that people are just you know excited to watch really complicated characters that can sometimes get ugly, and they're not kind of having you know like moral confusion. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, we'll leave it there. That is Melissa Kirsch, deputy editor of Culture and Lifestyle at the New York Times. She writes the morning newsletter on Saturdays. One of my favorites. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for having me. That'll do it for this Wednesday edition of the show. Be sure to join us again tomorrow morning with much more as always. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us today. Have a good one. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.